got a new, a new season here for uh, the, the latter part of the summer that I'm kind of excited about, a series of conversations with you all. So Psalm 24, uh, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay, what a blanket statement. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All right, now then, the, just think about that for a moment. Just think about that, that theology that understands that everything in the earth is God's. Okay? That, that God is the Lord over all things. Not over some little things, but over all things. And then, on, on the flip side, we have uh, the early church learning how to work this out. And, and the Apostle Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, and, and he says, whatever you, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay? So on one, on one side, you have the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And on the other side, you have whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. So you've got an entire world that is not outside of the sphere of God, and then you have a calling for all of our actions to actually honor and glorify God. That's, that's pretty, like, broad if we take those two statements and look at them together. We often live a really, really small gospel. Okay? What I mean is that the good news of God is often very, very small and compartmentalized in our lives. Um, and yet Jesus talks about coming to bring full life. We, we compartmentalize that and truncate it down to like life after death. But that's not the words that Jesus uses. He uses eternal life, which is a way of life, not a time that begins after death. So Jesus says, I came to bring full life. That's why he spends so much time teaching us how to look into the face of our enemy and see our brother. And not just pray a prayer and move on with the rest of our lives being meaningless. Okay? So, if we compartmentalize, we miss out on so much of the beauty. If this is your spiritual hour of the week, you miss out on so much beauty. If your understanding of Jesus is a few beliefs about him and an understanding of what happens after you die, then you're missing out on so much life. So we want to break that down. We want to break it open and see new things in new ways, all right? And, and we want to become transformed. All of life is God's, and everything can be seen through the lens of Jesus. Uh, so what ends up happening is when we don't do that, when we see parts of our lives as like spiritual and then the rest as normal, you know what I mean? Like normal life, the kind of, the things that fall into that are kind of the nitty-gritty spirit or the nitty-gritty physical stuff just often gets overlooked in our lives as like, well, it's just, I don't know, it's just life. It's not, it's not really a way to be Christian in this area or not or anything like that. That actually connects to an ancient attitude called Gnosticism. We won't get too deeply into it, but the Gnostics early, and they were around at the time of, of the early church, they believed that Jesus wasn't actually a person, he just looked that way. So he was actually a spirit that appeared physical, but that God would never um, kind of demean God's self by entering humanity, not really. So it looked like that just to help us out, but everything physical like, was, was just kind of beneath God. And so matter itself was fallen and evil and messed up. And so, so what that led to is a whole bunch of beliefs that says, well, what matters is the spirit world, okay? And the physical world, well, that's just, it's all going to pass away. It's all going to burn up. So what that does is it does a couple things. Number one, it disconnects a whole bunch of our life from Jesus. Number two, it makes us stop caring about the world around us. And number three, it makes us just sit around and wait for one day when our faith, like, has meaning. Okay, so we want to just blow that away and say that is not what discipleship is about. Our faith is embodied, friends. It's physical. 
It's eating and drinking and aging and dishwashing and recycling and going to work and sitting in the forest and standing in awe of architecture and beautiful works of creativity and it's offering a cold cup of water to a day laborer and it's walking through suffering and it's kneeling in prayer and it's so much more. Okay? This, this is life in, in Jesus. So we are going to learn in new ways to live where every single aspect of our being is under the lordship of Jesus, where it all counts, even the normal parts. All right? And we're going to think about some of the normal parts. So, all right. If everything then is God's, and this is our setup. I'm trying to get through it quick so that we can have fun on actually today's theme. Um, If everything is God's, and everything that we think or do or say is intended to be different because of that, what that means is that all of life is holy. Just think about that. All of life is holy. And holy means, and here's what we're going to use at least for these weeks, that something is uniquely purposed for God. It's not normal. It's, it's special. There's, it's, it's something that is marked by God and intended to bring us into deeper connection with God. Okay? Something marked by God intended to bring us into deeper connection with God. So when we talk for the next, I don't know, six, seven weeks in all these different areas about how Everything is holy. It means that everything in our lives is intended to be uniquely purposed in such a way that helps us experience more of God and expand and extend the kingdom of God that Jesus spends so much time talking about. All right? So, that means even the normal parts. So we're going to reflect on all these different unique topics. Some of them you've probably never heard talked about in church before, at least not in the ways that we will. Um, but, uh, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But since our foundational passage that I mentioned, uh, not the earth is the Lord's, but the second passage, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, that started in a conversation about eating with Paul and the early disciples. And what, what happened was that they were trying to figure out this, this new gospel of freedom opened up the door to a lot of foods that either because of kosher law and Levitical law or because of interacting with Greek people who were not following any of these laws and sometimes had food that was sacrificed to animals or sacrificed to to idols and all sorts of stuff like that. They were like, when my friend asks me over for dinner, what am I allowed to do or not? And so they actually get into this and they start talking about how you don't want to make it more difficult for somebody else to understand your faith, but you're also not bound by any of these external rules, okay? And I was going to kind of talk through it, but, um, but I, don't, I don't think we need to. But he kind of says, listen, you've got permission to do, to do pretty much whatever you want, but the goal is not to do whatever you want, all right? You have permission to do whatever you want, whether it's food sacrificed or something like that, but it probably wouldn't be wise if someone points that out because maybe it looks like you are in agreement with the idea of sacrificing food to idols. So he goes into all of this, and then he sums the whole thing up. So anyways, we're not going to get into everything, but, but he says you have freedom. You need to respect that, but also you need not be controlled by another person who has different feelings. And then he says in verse 31 there at the bottom, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. <sighs> so since it starts like this, we're going to do the same thing. If everything that we are supposed to to be and do and see and think and feel is all able to be directed toward the glory of God, then if food mattered to them, maybe food should matter to us too. We're going to talk about how eating is holy for the next few minutes.
And so I want you to think about the best bite of food you've ever had. Just think about it for a second. What is the best bite of food you ever have? Can you remember? Some of you freak out with superlatives, so you're like, I can't pick one. It's making me stressed. It's okay. It doesn't have to be the single best bite. I married somebody like that. <clears throat> so, what's a, something amazing? I don't know. Just someone, two or three people, call, call out one of the most amazing bites of food you've ever had. Do you remember the moment? Cheesecake, do you remember where you were? Like the one, not just your favorite type of food? Yeah, yeah. Um, on an anniversary trip with my wife a few, um, a few years ago, I had a, um, we were at an Asian fusion place, and they, um, they had a seared tuna that was perfectly cooked, mostly, mostly raw, with this flavor that was like the most amazing thing that's ever like been on my fork. And I still remember it because I was like, I could eat pounds and pounds of this. That's probably not a healthy thing. But, but there's something about good food that is so remarkable that it makes an, it makes an impact on us. Um, it, it's just, it's fascinating. Um, but, but when we think about food, it's what, what we really overlook often is that food is central to the story that forms us as Christ followers. I mean, the first words in, in the book of Genesis to Humans are to go and eat freely with one, with one limitation. But the first words that God says are go and eat freely of all of these wonderful different types of trees. Just not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's a whole different series to talk about, so we're not getting into that. But at the end, the last words that Jesus, or the last words in the entire scripture, in the book of Revelation, is drink freely anyone who is thirsty. So we begin with the, the invitation to eat freely, and we end with the invitation to drink freely. Anyone who is thirsty is invited in. And think about all of this. I mean, think about it. The Lord's table is one of the central practices which began as a meal, has turned into a symbol, but needs to be remembered as a meal because of what it was. In the middle of the Lord's prayer, we are called in the central part of how Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. We're called to be aware of our human needs for food and to ask for enough, but not maybe more than enough. But it's all a part of this story, right? Why do we spend so little time thinking about the intersection between food and faith? As we get deeper into all of this stuff, we start to see that our food is intimately intertwined in our own spiritual lives. Food can build up our health. It can bring joy. It can bring community. Or food can also leave us less healthy, more slothful, more isolated. Food affects economic, spiritual, physical aspects of our lives all over the place. All right, so, so the first thing, and, and I, <laughs> pun intended here, I bit off more than I could chew when we started to, to figure this out. Because I realized that there are so many implications for what we do that my job today is simply to introduce us to a few thoughts and then open up the door for further conversation and reflection, not to solve any problems. I'm going to bring up some. Um, but the first thing that I want to share about is that, um, is that eating has, has ethical implications, okay? The food that we eat has ethical implications on our lives. Um, near the... Uh, let me check. I think it's the end of the... The, yeah, near the 
end of the 19th century, in the 1870s, the way that wheat was um, processed, okay, was that there were two big stones that crushed the wheat together, okay, in a, in a local stone mill. And when they crushed the wheat together, um, it broke the wheat from the chaff, and then there was this thing called the wheat germ, and the wheat germ holds all uh, of these tiny little oils and omega-3 um, omega-3 oils and, and all this stuff. And what would happen is when you would crush it and when you would refine it, um, that oil would mix in with the flour because it was a part of the wheat, okay? But what that meant is that when you would get your wheat or when you would get your wheat flour, you would go home and within about a week or a little more, those oils would start to turn rancid. Think of it like, I don't know, like milk, right? It would have an end date. It, it gave a yellowish hue to the flour and it would start to smell, Okay, and so, so people didn't like that. They didn't like that you regularly had to, you know, go back and, and get it. So technology continued to form. And, and soon, steel and porcelain rollers were created that allowed the wheat germ to be disconnected from the rest of the wheat and removed without being broken. Okay, really amazing, right? Really amazing. And so what we get is this powdery, beautiful, fluffy flour. Okay, with the wheat germ removed, but what does the wheat germ have in it? <laughs> has fatty acids and omega-3 healthy things that are full of nutrients. And so what ended up happening is that you could uh, centralize all of the flour-making industry to far away, and you could ship it, and you could keep it for a couple months, but it didn't have any nutrients in it. And so people would, it looked very nice, it was much more efficient, you needed less mills, you needed to be less local, but when people started to eat it, they started to get sick, actually. Not just it didn't help them, but it, they started to fill their stomachs with not a lot. And so what happens when you realize that you don't have nutrients in food, you say, yeah, we, these local mills were really helpful. We should go back to that. Right? No, nobody ever goes back in technology. So what ends up happening is in a lab somewhere, someone was like, hey, here's all of these vitamins and nutrients, so let's put them in and let's enrich the flour. You ever heard that phrase before? Yeah, so all of our pasta and our flour is enriched. Okay, so, so here's what I mean by that whole story. The technology that we have is not ethically neutral. The things that we do to create our food often has implications that affect our economy, it affects our health, it affects people's lives, and then before you know it, we're eating food that we don't actually, that isn't actually food. It's true, we're eating food that's not actually food. And so, so when, when we do this, we have to understand that even as things have moved forward in so many ways, sometimes the costs associated with this thing, these things, the centralization of all of the money going to one place instead of local farmers, these things affect people's lives. What we buy and eat affects people's lives. And this is no guilt tripping. I, am, I have all sorts of like, how do I work all of this out with costs and everything like that? That's why the, an the, the point is not answers today. It's to help us understand that eating has ethical implications in a lot of ways. Uh, the other thing that I'll share about that, the other two are going to be much quicker, um, but there's something called monoculture, which is something that all Christians should, should be aware of. Monoculture means that in farms, because it's cheaper for farms to have specialized um, tools and everything like that, more and more farms, as they grow bigger, they only farm one type of food. So it's just soybean farms. It used to be soybeans in the, the spring, 
or in the, in the fall, you know, corn in this time of the year. Now it's just one type. And what that ends up doing is certain bugs um, that would normally be dealt with by other types of things and certain nutrients that would normally be put into the soil are pulled out of the soil. And so what we end, what we end up having to do is add more chemicals um, to centralize this process, and we have um, enzymes that have to be added uh, into um, giant herds of cows because uh, there, are, um, there are illnesses and stuff that is bred when the only thing around ever is just a herd of cows in the same spot, and nobody else ever eats that grass, and nobody else ever lets that land rest. When we understand these things, we start to ask really good questions, which we'll get to in a minute. But the second thing is, or a second thing, is that there are relational implications to eating too, right? Um, there are relational implications to sharing food together. When we eat together, and I think Sabrina mentioned this just a, a brief bit ago, there, there are barriers that break down between people. We all of a sudden are able to see one another in a new light when we're not um, when, when we're satisfying just a basic human longing for food. Um, there's something about what food does physically to us, to our mood. Um, you know, we have studies that show that uh, husbands and wives have less conflict if they discuss something after a meal than before. There's something that happens in sharing food together and that food affects us relationally. And some of you are like, it's not what happened last night after dinner. Um, I saw that look, Rob. Um, so... Calling you out. No, uh, so, so anyways, you know, there's relational implications to this too. And then, oh, and, and um, the other relational implications that, that I didn't mention, oh, shoot, this is important to keep us grounded. Let's take a step back to the ethical implications. One of the things that happened in the, the early um, people of God in the book of Exodus was that they were commanded to let the ground rest every so often. Okay? There was a rhythm to it where they understood, and, and this affected lives in all sorts of different ways. So this is ethical and relational. The poor would be able to go and take whatever grew from extra seeds that were sown. The animals would be able to graze on it, and when they did, then they would actually fertilize in their own ways, and the soil was able to be renewed. And what that taught us is that according to the scriptures, the highest value is not efficiency. is that care is a higher value than efficiency is. Sometimes we love efficiency. Okay, so let's talk then about that second one. Um, eating is relational not just because of the barriers that happen when we eat together, but that it's a part of the calling that we are intended to connect with the humanity around us by making sure that everyone has enough food. So in the book of Isaiah, the people who are engrossed in all of this worship of God but also living very unjustly we're told to feed the hungry and help those in trouble. And then, then your light will shine from the darkness and the darkness will become as bright as noon. That once they begin to care about the people around them, specifically the physical needs, specifically hunger, then all of a sudden their lives begin to be aligned with God in a new way again. Um, we see this in the New Testament, right? And this is what I really love because Jesus is rather overt about it. When people are hungry in the midst of teaching and the disciples say, hey, they should go, they should go away and, and you should make sure they get something to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Saying, hey, you have a role and a responsibility to play here. You can be a helper. And part of what the kingdom of God is going to look like is stomachs that have been filled. 
and there's beauty there. So eating is, it has relational implications. And, uh, and finally, this is just a, a quick touch point because some of you um, have thought about this more than I have, but there's an emotional component. An emotional implication to eating too. An emotional implication that says that every one of us has a relationship with food that draws us toward the fruit of the Spirit that God gives us or away from it. We have a relationship with food that draws us more toward peace and kindness and goodness and self-control or more away from it. And so we have to understand that it affects it. Are we even aware? Are we even aware? Okay, so I'm not going to offer a lot of solutions, like I said, uh, since I don't know what they are, and it's going to differ from one person to the next. I will offer some suggestions in just a bit, but what I really want us to do is start asking really good questions. And I could not possibly talk about asking questions about food without showing um, this, this little video clip, so I have to share it with you. It's from a show called Portlandia. Um, some of you might know it, but uh, yeah, don't judge me, please. All right. Hey guys, hello. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. So the hazelnuts, these are local. Uh, how big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm -hmm. Give me just a second. Mm -hmm. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Okay. All right, so here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying yeah. tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, palling around. I don't know that I can speak to that level of uh, intimate knowledge about him. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And and you feel and you, like you have a good relationship with this farm? We I do. <laughs> it just keeps going, so I can't, I can't even show more than that. They eventually get out of their seats in the middle of the meal to go and visit the farm, uh, to go and meet Colin's family um, and, and find out if they trust it. So I, I, I say that because it just makes me laugh and because, um, because maybe our, our time um, maybe needs to be a little more balanced than, than some of the obsessions that, that can take hold of us when we begin talking about, about some of these things. Um, but we do need to ask really, really, really good questions. And so I'm just going to offer you a few questions that are really helpful in our own journey of, of uh, honoring God with our eating, all right? So the, the first question, it sounds wild, but what am I eating? Do I know what I'm actually eating? Do I know what's in my food? And connected to that is, do I know where it comes from? Have I spent enough time to be at least moderately aware of, of where the process comes from and that there are real lives a part of each of these processes that bring food to my table or to my door or to the box that I buy it in? Are we aware that there are lives that are connected to all of these things? And if we are, then maybe that will affect us in some way. Maybe we will desire to do something differently. Um, in, in, in some way, if I begin to know where my food comes from and specifically what I'm actually eating, 
um, because there's lots of food that I eat and, you know, that I don't actually know what it really is. Um, I actually, I, I really love gummy bears. I don't like the organic ones, so I get the real ones. And, uh, and I have no idea what's in them. It's really good, but I should probably find out at some point. Um, I know there's a lot of sugar in there. Next question, who am I eating with? This is just a wonderful question that we're constantly asking. Consider if we tithed just 5% of our meals to others. One meal out of 21 a week. Think about the impact that that could have on being able to be a person of encouragement, on being encouraged yourself, on sharing life in new ways in a world that's becoming more and more isolated. Think about if I ask the question, who am I eating with? And am I intentional? If you have a family, are you intentional about that time from time to time? I know life is busy and crazy, but also are you intentional to share meals and to share coffee or tea or food or dessert or whatever with people around you that you care about or want to care about more? Because before we realize it, we, we see that something that God has designed as, as good and that in the early church is, is deeply a part of connecting people, we become completely disconnected from that practice. And then um, a fourth question is, why am I eating? And what is our motivation behind eating at any given time? If we're asking that question, then sometimes uh, it can help us actually move toward God in new ways, in beautiful ways, and it maybe moves us away from unhealthy practices um, in other ways. And so these questions can really, really open the door, again, not to you looking like the person beside you in terms of exactly how you think or act, but in, in being more intentional if we believe that eating is holy. Um, so, so if the big idea here is that whatever we do, in this case eating, we do for God's glory, then there are opportunities that come in this world in such cool ways. And here are some of them, all right? So um, I know I'm giving a lot of lists, and the goal is just to get us thinking, and then we're going to dialogue in just a moment. Um, but, but here's another list. So holy eating, which is eating for God's glory, it provides us opportunities to practice some, some really cool things. The first thing is economic and environmental justice. All right? Um, I talked about this before, but, but when we are intentionally saying, I want to eat for God's glory, it provides us with the opportunity to say, am I aware of if there are things that are degrading in, that, that, I, that I learn that are degrading the environment or that are making it more difficult. You know, if, if my goal is to get the cheapest everything, then sometimes that comes at a cost to somebody else. Um, you know, we, we buy coffee um, from a co-op that we have a relationship with called Cafe Justo, or in English, Just Coffee. Uh, and it's down in Mexico, um, and... I've been able to travel there and, and spend some time with the people who are behind this, this business, and they work with farmers who set their own prices down in the bottom uh, portion of Mexico, and then they ship their beans up to the top portion, and they um, roast them and process them there, and, and they send them out. But it's fascinating to know we pay more money for coffee than we would need to because we know that what it's doing is it's giving um, workers who might otherwise, um, because of the economic impact, be trying to cross the border, which is an incredibly dangerous thing, have some stability, and, and economic reasons are, are the number one driving force for that, gives them stability where they are actually having retirement plans and health insurance because we're spending a buck and a half more on coffee per pound. And when we think about these things, we can do something small. It's so small. It doesn't affect most of us at all. But let me tell you, it hasn't affected our church budget to buy a buck and a half more per pound of coffee to make sure that there's 
farmers in Mexico that are getting treated fairly. So there's little things, little things. Um, the, the second thing, or another way that we have an opportunity to practice um, as we eat for God's glory is trust in a, a really cool and beautiful way. Uh, in, in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is tempted in the desert, he's really hungry, and, and um, the, the, the tempter comes to him, the adversary comes to him and says, just, just turn some stones into bread, use your powers. And Jesus responds by saying, it's written from the scriptures that man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So two things happen here. Number one, when we eat, we are reminded that bread is one of the things that sustains us physically. And that we have to trust the God of the harvest to provide. But also, every single time we eat, every single time we fill the physical needs of our body, it provides us with an opportunity to be reminded of our spiritual need for God. Every single time that we are reminded that if I don't eat, I'm going to get hangry. A word that's used regularly in our family. For all of us. Um, If I don't eat, I'm going to get weak. In just the same way, every time that we eat and nourish ourselves, it's connected to what we do at the end of all of our gatherings. We are reminded that Jesus is the life to our spiritual hope. That Jesus brings vitality and gives us the power to love, to forgive, to care, to offer compassion. All of these things. And so, so we are learning constantly when we eat, if we direct it in the, right, in the right way, we learn trust and we're reminded of trust in new ways. Connected to that is, is gratitude. Um, I love in, in the book of Acts in chapter 14, Paul's uh, talking to people who have no backstory with, with um, the Jewish people. And what he's talking about is is how God has made himself known in so many different ways. And here's what he says. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And so, so there's this idea and this reminder that when we eat, we have an opportunity in each way to remember that God is the source of everything. That everything is, that all the earth is the Lord's, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we have an opportunity to learn and practice gratitude regularly. Connected to that, fills your hearts with joy, is this really, really cool little thing. That every single time we eat, we have an opportunity to practice enjoyment. To practice joy. Like, food did not have to taste as good as it tastes. Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's amazing to imagine the variety of foods that we have and how beautiful they are, how colorful, how, how delicious they can all be and not realize that it doesn't have to be like that, that God has created something for us to be able to enjoy that will bring us delight. How, how incredible is, is something like that? And I love this. Psalm 34, 8 is, says, taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't taste and see that the Lord is good if you don't have an understanding that tasting things are amazing. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, it makes no sense unless you've ever experienced how bread fills. And, and I, I know some people probably don't eat bread, but you just got to put yourself into that moment. I like bread, love bread. Um, but to realize that when we say taste and see the Lord is good, the word of God is like honey, the early rabbis would teach. And, and they would teach their teenage uh, Talmud, Talmudine 
They would teach them by, by getting a little stick of honey and they would close their eyes and at the beginning of their studies they would dip a, a stick of honey and put it on each tongue and they would say, don't ever forget that the word of God is like honey to your lips. Because taste is so incredibly good that it forms a perfect metaphor for God's goodness. So there's all of this beauty. So when we eat, we can enjoy God and enjoy the food equally. Like we can remember that what we enjoy in food, we can find in God and we can find God in the enjoyment of our food. Um, and finally, community. And we've mentioned this before. Um, but in the, early, in the early church's practice, we see in Acts 2 uh, that, that the central practices that they had included the breaking of bread, which meant the sharing of meals. Okay. And so they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship, sharing time together, the breaking of bread and prayer, sharing meals together. It was one of the, f- the primary things that if they gave one sentence about what the life of the early church looked like, sharing food was one of them. So, so when, we, uh, when we understand that eating is holy, then we understand that it's an opportunity for community to develop in, in new and beautiful ways. Um, so look at all of this. Let me pull it back up. There we go. Look at all of this. What a gift to have something that is so central to our daily lives, so incredibly central to our daily lives that gives us an opportunity to draw close to Jesus and his kingdom all the time through these different ways. And there's more. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously. Um, but what a gift when we think about it, that multiple times every single day we have an opportunity to practice all of these things and grow closer to Jesus and the kingdom of God that he, that he reveals for us. Um, so in light of all of this, uh, as, we, as we dialogue, I'm going to offer a final, simple set of, um, of, practical, of practical starting points for seeing food as holy. So that's what they can form in us. But here's some actual action steps, if it's helpful for you. They might not be helpful for you. They're helpful for me to, to be thinking about. Um, and it's just summing up everything that we've just talked about. So the first thing is, is shrink the shipping. So that means that when possible, one way to practice the things that we just talked about is buying local that distributes wealth more easily and is usually more responsible environmentally and it's healthier for your body. All of those things. All of these things which honor God in every one of those levels. So buy locally when it's possible um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, Just five things. Second thing is share meals with other people. We talked about that before. Um, But the emotional benefit is incredible to share meals. And there's no, there's no like secret that we're talking about this on a holiday weekend when lots of people eat foods and have picnics and, and do things like this that we're talking about eating on, on this weekend. But sharing meals has this wonderful emotional impact if we, if we lean into it. Uh, the third thing is get in touch with the land. All right. And, and that looks like, it can look like two things. Number one, try gardening, even if it's just something small, even if it's just making herbs on your windowsill. But get in touch with the land and understand that there is a rhythm to life and buy things that are in the right season. And you'll start to understand. You'll be able to look forward to the rhythms of the land that exists. Like, you know, like maybe you, you don't need a, an orange in the middle of, I don't know, the seasons. See, this is why I'm not an expert. I can't even give a good example. But, but when we learn to grow things, you know, a strawberry in the middle of winter, let's say. Um, we used to have a strawberry patch, and I loved getting ready for, for what a fresh strawberry tastes like because it's totally different than most stores. But learn to eat foods that are in the season and, and get in touch with the land more, and you'll find that there's a beauty that you're reminded that, wow, there's a reason that land is one of the central 
themes in all of the scriptures. Two more things. Eat slower. Eat slower means go ahead and cook more frequently to restore your own humanity and allow yourself to truly enjoy good food with a sense of holiness. Like, I fly through so many meals for almost no reason. But when we eat more slowly, we have opportunity to practice these other things. Um, and then finally, I'll encourage you to, to pray intentionally. I don't know if you have a, a culture where you pray before meals, but sometimes the way that we pray for our food, which is the, the phrase that is usually used in, in Christian subcultures, acts like our food is going through a crisis and like it needs our help. So I'm going to pray for our food right now. Like the food is fine most of the time, and, and if it's not, your prayer is not going to help. You know, um, but what we can do is we can pray for those who have been a part of this food getting to our table. We can pray for the earth that God gave us to actually care for with responsibility and tend to, which we're going to talk about in a couple weeks when we talk about the, the earth being holy. Um, what we can do is we can pray and let God form a spirit of gratitude in us in new ways. We can pray and let God form a sense of understanding of the people around us and of our, my own emotional state to pause and come to God before I enjoy something that is so central to my own humanity. So if we pray more intentionally, it'll change how we do things. So I encourage you, if you're in a, a habit of like just saying a quick prayer, most of the time that doesn't affect you anymore. And, and it's, it's just this afterthought that doesn't mean much of anything. So I'd encourage you to change that practice somehow. And maybe if you don't pray before a meal, maybe learn to pause for a few moments and be still before God. Okay, I want to hear... Uh, you fill in the gaps because all we did was scratch the surface here for just a little bit. So we're going to give you these questions and we're going to toss around the catch box to help, um, to help continue to, to brainstorm and, and uh, see the opportunities that we have to grow closer to Jesus through this. So uh, I'll, I'll introduce you to the questions in just a second. You can see them there. But let's, let's be still at this exact moment and, and come before God. Lord, we have all sorts of weird relationships with food. Some of us even talking about this will cause massive anxiety because it's caused illness in us. Some of us struggle because even thinking about economics is overwhelming when we're just trying to barely make ends meet. And some of us just need to sit a little bit longer and, and sift out how this might actually hit our lives. But Lord, I, I pray that you would draw us closer to you, that every one of the things in our bodies that you've created in order to function would, would be an opportunity for us to, to lean on you, to trust you. So just help tweak us in just a little new direction so that our lives can be more holistic through this conversation, Lord. Amen. Okay, so as you consider eating as holy, maybe which of the areas that we hit on is God stirring you toward deeper reflection and action? Maybe uh, what experiences from your own life su have suggested a connection between God and eating? Uh, 
and what other food practices can help you grow in some of the areas that we talked about with justice, gratitude, community. So feel free to speak toward any one of these. Here's my one caveat. No judgy attitudes, okay, about like, well, I do this because that's the only right way to do it. Um, that doesn't help. Uh, but we want to grow together. So, uh, and no, so no, no preaching. Even if you have strong convictions, that's great. We're learning to be a body together and each work it out ourselves, which is essentially the whole point of Paul's passage that started this whole thing off. Work it out yourselves, people. Act with integrity. Okay. Who wants to just offer? It doesn't have to be profound or complicated. So um, I think it was last Thanksgiving, there was this group on Twitter who, if I remember correctly, they worked with um, migrants harvesting vegetables at the big farms. And they went through all of the traditional Thanksgiving foods and told a little bit about the process of, you know, how it's harvested, how long the people work, how long it takes, what the dangers are. You know, I want to say it was like Brussels sprouts or something, there was something that like they use like this really big knife and people constantly get hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and I gotta tell you, after reading through that, it was like a week they did this, like just throughout different ones. Cooking Thanksgiving meal huh. that year was different. Hmm. Um, I was thinking about the implications, I was thinking about the hands that had touched it and um, you know, praying for their safety, for their happiness that they would be able to um, make a living wage and all that kind of stuff. I don't know, it just, it really changed the way I looked at the food. It was interesting. That's for sure. Here we go. I, I, I love this topic. I knew um, you would. I mean, uh, I'm like, there are I know few, a few of you. There, there are, are really few people who enjoy food as quite as much as me. <laughs> And I've, I've, I think we've, we've talked about this before. Yeah. I think anything that you do three times a day should be done with some degree of care, hmm. right? Yeah. Like, um, that's, that, that's, and I was talking about this to a friend of mine yesterday at lunch. And I turned to him and said, you realize that we do this three times every single day and it never gets old? Like, if, you, if there was anything else that you had to do three times a day, you'd be like, this sucks. This is awful. <laughs> this is draining the life out of me. So when we were fashioned, there's something in here that is always looking forward to it, hmm. right? So hmm. this this is a this is a great place to start with things like I, I think you I, I can't really connect to exactly what you said about the matter of care, but it's it's always something that I feel so very very strongly about. Is I think it's an American value hmm. and a capitalist value that we value efficiency far over care. Yeah. So you know you look. Like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, and this is this is where I want to be careful because I don't want to tread on anybody's toes. I shop at Costco because it's practical. Uh, you can buy a pork loin that big, and you can break it down and put it in your freezer. And but this, th th these are things that have been gnawing on my brain all of that yeah. time. Like, yeah, that's really really practical and that's great, and it's not immoral. It's just like, okay, so what was the life of this creature like? Mm -hmm. You know, was it grown in a pen like the size of these three? You know, and then and then limited, you know, and then turned on its side so that the you know the the the, the piglets can come and just like you know go nuts, and then they can go and live that life over there, 
right? There's that. There's, you know, I guess I'm getting to, there's a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma that yeah. should be required reading for all people who eat, which is all of you. And, um, and it's, it's just, it's fascinating because we're, <clears throat> there's that expression, do a, does a fish know it's underwater? Right, we're, we, we grew up in this ferment. Yeah. Like, and this is, this, the uh, changes of this nature have to be made very incrementally and yeah. purposefully and kind of pick and choose where you're gonna dive in because man, yeah. you know, otherwise you do end up like the folks in Portlandia, you know, going yeah. about, talking about Colin <laughs> or whatever. Good stuff, so, yeah, thanks Phil. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? What's that? They end up, they, they end up becoming a part of a cult at the chicken, the chicken farm. They're, they never leave the chicken farm in that episode. They go there and they are drawn into the cult. Um, it's really funny. Jason Sudeikis is the cult leader. Okay. Who, uh, yes, thanks. Uh, from a community aspect, when you go out to eat, never leave behind a pamphlet instead of a tip. <laughs> Having been a Christian that was tithing and receiving a pamphlet hmm. as a tip was yeah. crushing because it was like so judgmental. It was like just because I was serving meant I wasn't a believer, yeah. right? And <clears throat> then within the server community, Christians are notoriously bad tippers. Yes, right. Right, and that's crushing when you're like a Christian witnessing to people in that environment to like, like love on them. Yeah. And they come to you at the end of a shift and said, I got these five families and I made the worst amount of money I've ever made working a shift, right? No one wants to work it, Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's really crushing right. in that environment. Yeah. And so that's a really big deal for me as a like just loving on people thing, right? Yep. Especially because there's almost always a Christian in those places loving on people hmm. and it makes it really hard. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great little little word, goodness. Yeah, we, we should be known for generosity, not stinginess. Right here. <clears throat> First thing, uh, Keith, is if you saw us laughing towards the end, as you were being very serious, we got raspberries here. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like the timing was unbelievable. So nice, <laughs> full raspberry. That's great. Um, <clears throat> I, when you started, I was sort of like, "Wow, where can this go?" You yeah, know? it was like really. But I just wanted to say thank you for reminding me of all that you talked about today because it was good. it was yeah. really good and really important. It's a reminder for me too. Yeah. Do you know when I first started thinking about this stuff this way? Was in seminary. Really? It was a, I, we had a class on ethics, and we talked about food ethics for a week of reading hours every night about it, and I, was, I had never really thought about it before. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have so much personal work to do here because I want to I wanna see all of this through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. All right, I'm going to offer some practical. A lot of people in here are like, okay, how do I eat local? Well, luckily... I'm married to a very good chef. <laughs> he's and got his he's, own Facebook page he, about cooking yes, outdoors. If any of you are interested, <laughs> you can look him up. Um, but his, our friend, um, kind of challenged him, or I don't know, 
maybe uh, gave him the task of going and getting food from local farms and then doing kind of a review. And so because of that, we've really, um, we know a lot of the local farms. So I don't know if we can put that up on our community page or whatever, but give you guys resources. And really it's not that much different than the grocery store as far as prices. Um, and there's a little bit of planning, but a lot of times you buy frozen stuff from the grocery store anyway. So most of it, they freeze right away after. Um, but we have a local Amish farmer. We get our eggs and our chickens from every week, but until our chickens start laying eggs, which will be soon. Um, and we have, I mean, we garden, so we have a lot of our own fresh vegetables. But so how do you, practically, how do you do it? You just have to plan. And just like sharing a meal, you just have to plan, be intentional. Um, but we can kind of share. A lot of people probably don't even know where the local farms are around here. Yeah. But if you see a farmer's market stand, you know, they'll have the local vegetables and even meat. So um, our friend Clay, he has his vegetable stand, and it's really 10, 15 minutes from Newark. It's across the Maryland line, just a couple miles. And it's uh, a great produce stand. They have meat, they have vegetables, but all local. So, hmm. yeah. And Phil has some. All right, I'm going to tag in. Um, for me, food is all about love because like I like to cook and I'll do all that um, but if it's just me at home at night it's leftovers or whatever right I'm not preparing anything for myself you know but when I'm cooking for her or anybody else all of it comes into play of mm -hmm. the creativity and the presentation and the time and you know and it's kind of like I feel maybe it's how I don't know but you know the guy that like runs into the grocery store on February 14th to, you know, at like after work to buy the cellophane wrap set of flowers for his wife, right? Like, I don't want to be that guy, <laughs> you know, uh, to put thought into a gift is the same way like you put thought into a meal, how you give that to your family mm -hmm. or, you know, it's so obvious that like, you know, Jesus was accused of being a glutton because of the love that was involved around that moment and, and all of the like you know when you realize that God has given you these food items and then you take them and work with them to then mm. present them to somebody else it's just mm. it's just love <laughs> from beginning to end yeah thanks for bringing that that love theme into it good stuff all right we'll go over here to Ben nice hello I'm Ben um I was just thinking that we haven't really talked about this yet, but just the, the culture that the scriptures were written in and everything, how much the daily, I guess, um, tasks of food preparation, all that, just how much work, how much of your life, your day was just about getting food for whatever, for the day, for the, the winter. Um, we're just so foreign to us here. Um, all of our food is, you know, like I, we, I feel like we all have just so much access to, you know, to food, which is fine. Um, so a little bit of a shift to understand what, you know, why, like, the word of the Lord is honey on our tongue. Like, that, that mm. makes sense to people. Where us, you know, we can get sugar whenever we want it. Right? <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. Um, so I feel like the absence of food is really what makes that mm. very clear. Um, twice in my life I've been able to just do, like, a three-day, like, it was out in the wilderness, you know, and other, other life. <laughs> that I was living three days just like fasting of no food just water and um, 
food took on a different, yeah. a different like, importance in my life. It became less important in the sense that I understood, oh, I, don't, I can live off very little. But it also becomes very important when you get up to go to the bathroom and you can't walk around well, even after just three days of not eating. Hmm. Um, totally changed my out outlook on life and especially around food. Um, so that's that, that, it's just so foreign to us and I think it, we're missing something. We're missing the beauty of what it means to be the bread of life because hmm. we have bread everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So Thanks. just uh, something helpful in my life is just actually I experiencing no food. Yeah, yeah, and, and that just brings that, the broader theme there, you know, is that we may have to be intentional about finding ways to re, to see food in new light, <laughs> you know, especially as we trust God. One of the things about pre-modern times was that people would look at the weather systems and it was like, I am trusting God. This is why all of the festivals around harvest happened. I'm trusting God to bring the harvest, to bring the rains. If there's a drought, then... We need to pray and trust God, and when, the, when everything grows, then we celebrate and we thank God. We're completely disconnected from that because we're just like, well, let's look at weather patterns and, you know, and, and what's happening in the atmosphere and globe. And so that might be scientific, which I have no problem with, but there's a complete disconnect about our food being a gift anymore. Our food comes from the supermarket. It doesn't come as a result of the rains that fill the earth. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think there's just so much intentionality that we can continue to grow in. Thanks. Oh, we have one more comment. All the way over here. Might have to. Oh, wow. These, these guys are accurate. Yeah. Very accurate. Well, uh, my name's Cami, and um, you already mentioned it about just how exquisitely beautiful it is that, you know, one of the centerpieces of our faith has yeah. to do with um, uh, taking, you know, in the body and blood of God who wants to be part of us. Um, so the other thing that I was going to mention is that faithfulness looks different at different points in our lives. Hmm. And um, in fact, day to day, it hmm. looks uh, different. And so sometimes when you're talking about certain circumstances, you think, I can't. Well, God never asks us to do things we can't hmm. do. And... Um, Anyway, so I was just going to say what faithfulness looks yeah. like for us, each one, um, in this hmm. particular um, circumstance, and food is so yeah. utterly central. Yeah. You know, we'll look a little different. I hope everybody heard that, including the folks that are back on Zoom, that faithfulness looks different at different times in our lives and to different circumstances, because I think that's... And even day to day. And day to day. I think that's a really, really good comment and helpful comment to, to end on there because, yeah, there's just so much beauty. There shouldn't be guilt as we think about this or feeling like pressure. Um, yeah, it should be an opportunity. Opportunity. See whatever might be the right place for us to keep growing toward Jesus.